from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, August 28th. Today, what the conventions can tell us about the campaign ahead and how the NBA protests could change the future of sports. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So, Dan, describe for me exactly what it was like on this last night of the Republican National Convention. Well, the most striking thing, I think, was the degree to which the Trump campaign just simply appropriated the White House as a campaign backdrop. Dan Boltz is a senior political correspondent for The Post. Gathered here at our beautiful and majestic White House, known all over the world as the People's House, we cannot help but marvel at the miracle that is our great American story. No president has ever done this. The fact is, I'm here. What's the name of that building? It's in violation of all of the traditions and and perhaps illegal what they did. To me, one of the most beautiful buildings anywhere in the world. And it's not a building, it's a home as far as I'm concerned. But they went ahead and did it anyway. Not even a house, it's a home. It's a wonderful place with an incredible history. But it's all because of you. It looked beautiful. The White House is a beautiful place. But in the past, people who have been in the White House, whether they are the president or the people who work for them, who have any involvement in the campaign, have have literally set up separate operations, a separate fax machine, a separate phone line. We know that if you're a member of Congress, you can't call people and raise money in your congressional office. You have to go somewhere else that is separate from that. This was a complete blurring of the lines by the president in in the most flagrant way imaginable. The South Lawn was packed with people. The fireworks that followed, which included spelling out Trump 2020 in the sky over the Washington Monument was quite unbelievable actually to, to look at it. And at the same time, just outside the White House in the Black Lives Matter Plaza, you had demonstrators and protesters. Jarring as it seemed, you had those two events, one beautifully staged and the other the real raw emotion of people protesting about racial injustice. You had all of that colliding last night as both symbolically and and in reality what this campaign right now is about. Together we will write the next chapter of the great American story. For the last two weeks, two wildly different national conventions have taken place back to back. And it was just, frankly, shocking to see how different those images could be. You know, coming out of the Democratic convention, there is a sense that this is a country that is being rocked by systemic injustice and racism and a fundamental disbelief in science and public health policy, and that that is what is going to bring on an apocalyptic future. And then coming out of this week with the Republican National Convention, you see the sense that 
America is being driven into lawlessness and this focus on chaos and cities and protests and what that means and unrest and a feeling that President Trump is the only person who can bring back a sense of law and order. So after watching and reporting on both of them, what was the feeling that you were left with? My main feeling is that these two candidates and these two parties are talking about two strikingly different Americas. In one area, they agree, which is the significance of this election. And both sides agree that if the other side wins, there is an apocalyptic future for the state of the country. The worst pandemic in over 100 years, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the most compelling call for racial justice since the 60s. So the question for us is simple. Are we ready? And their vision of what that apocalypse would look like is fundamentally different. There is violence and danger in the streets of many Democrat-run cities throughout America. This problem could easily be fixed if they wanted to. Just call. We're ready to go in. We'll take care of your problem in a matter of hours. Just call. In comparing the two conventions, one thing I would say is that in addition to projecting the diversity of the country that the Democrats did and the focus on racism and racial justice or injustice, the other focus that they wanted to put forward was the severity of the pandemic and the degree to which Joe Biden would handle that differently and, in their view, more responsibly than President Trump has done. And what we saw this week at the Republican convention was certainly a much greater focus on the chaos and the violence that has come with the protests over the police shootings of of unarmed black men. And that any mention of the pandemic is one of a success story of President Trump talking about how great we're doing in response to coronavirus rather than in acknowledgement of the failures. Right. I mean, it was striking that when Melania Trump made a comment about the lives being disrupted and, and expressing sympathy for people who have lost loved ones, that it was so notable at the convention as opposed to something that would be a kind of an ordinary thing. President Trump, I think, had one paragraph in his speech on Thursday night. We will defeat the virus, end the pandemic, and emerge stronger than ever before. But for the most part, you're right that they're, they're talking about it as if it is something mostly in the past we are delivering life-saving therapies and will produce a vaccine before the end of the year. And to the degree it is not. Or maybe even sooner. There is a vaccine that's going to arrive very, very quickly. Before the end of the year, he said. Well, but Dr. Fauci has said perhaps by the end of the year there will be a, a vaccine. But the president is, you know, is is rushing that in part to give people hope who want hope. But will he be able to deliver it? I I don't know. And the other reality is, while we are in the middle of this, he is not encouraging the kind of behavior that the scientists say would help to contain this more rapidly. Which was on display at the RNC, where you saw so many audience members sitting right next to each other. The masks were not uniform at best. And then it did seem like the audience that was there for President Trump's speech was not one that was particularly concerned about the pandemic. 
No, I mean it was a. It seemed like a deliberate effort to say we're getting through this and we're going to be fine. And I was struck by how few people actually wore a mask. I mean, it was it was pretty shocking given how close people were sitting and for the length of time that they were sitting next to one another. I want to focus a little bit more on President Trump's speech itself and specifically how he talked about Joe Biden, because I thought it was really interesting that even though many of the criticisms of Biden from the left are that that he's not far enough to the left, that he's not liberal enough, that he has a lot of policy platforms that hew more conservative. When you hear from President Trump, he's made out to be really a radical, a a socialist, a lot of things that I think were really surprising to hear. Well, the strategy obviously is to tie Biden to the left wing of the Democratic Party. The truth is that the Democratic platform this year is more liberal than platforms have been in the past. They're also trying to suggest that whatever you may know about Joe Biden's record, he is a weak nominee and would be a weak president and would essentially turn over his presidency to the left wing of the party. If Joe Biden doesn't have the strength to stand up to wild-eyed Marxists like Bernie Sanders and his fellow radicals, and there are many, there are many, many, we see them all the time, it's incredible actually, then how is he ever going to stand up for you? He's not. And it's just really shocking to see how President Trump was describing these protests, uh, talking about protesters as anarchists and agitators and lawbreakers when they are protesting racial injustice and the president just didn't acknowledge that or basically lied about that. The Republican Party condemns the rioting, looting, arson, and violence we have seen in Democrat-run cities all, like Kenosha, Minneapolis, Portland, Chicago, and New York, and many others, Democrat-run. Well, I think what what was missing was any acknowledgement of, let's say, Kenosha, which has erupted this week, any acknowledgement of what the triggering event was. And, and that was the shooting of Jacob Blake, which was captured on video. That's what set off the protests. And the president talked about protests and violence and lawlessness without ever expressing any sympathy for the victim, um, who fortunately is not, you know, was not killed, but is at this point paralyzed. Um, so it's, it's, it's as if he is, he is starting the conversation a long way away from the, the root causes of what have triggered these protests. And, and that, you know, that's a fundamental missing piece of the argument that he's dealing with. So given that message that, that President Trump and Republicans are trying to send about Biden and how they believe that he's going to relinquish power to the more radical end of the Democratic Party— With that, along with this split screen of what's been happening in Kenosha and the protests there, do you think that this image of lawlessness in America and Biden being unable to control the chaos and unrest, do you think that that is something that is actually going to take hold and be salient for voters over the next couple of months? Well, we're going to have to watch and and see. I mean, there is some evidence already, not overwhelming at this point, but there's some evidence that attitudes and and opinions about the Black Lives Matter movement have shifted somewhat from June after the protests that followed the killing of George Floyd 
to today. And we can't factor in what's happened in Kenosha this week because it's too soon. But the degree to which people are um, not as supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, the more the possibility is that the message of chaos and violence and lawlessness that the Trump campaign and the president are arguing could begin to take hold. And if it takes hold in places like Wisconsin or Minnesota or Pennsylvania or Michigan, those states which are obviously crucial to the outcome of the election, and two of those states being epicenters of the killings and protests that have followed those killings, that might be enough in the end to shift the election, given how close those states were four years ago. So when it comes to the next 10 weeks before Election Day, what should we expect to see from President Trump and from Joe Biden next? I mean, let's start with the president. He was quite clear last night where he's heading. Um, A, it's that Biden will turn the country over to the left wing, and B, that the lawlessness, the violence in the streets that you are seeing will get worse and potentially come to your neighborhood. The Biden campaign will be continuing to focus as much effort as they can on the coronavirus pandemic and the degree to which the president, in their estimation, has mishandled it. There is receptivity to that, as we know, because in the survey research data, uh, the judgment about how President Trump has handled it has been very harsh, and it got worse between March and the middle of summer. They also want to talk about racial injustice. It is very vital to the core of the Democratic Party that that be a part of the message. Where they're potentially conflicted is they also, Joe Biden is trying to get some of those white working class voters who went for Trump in 2016 to vote for him this time around. And so he's going to have to figure out how he deals with the violence that has accompanied the peaceful protests. Dan Boltz is a senior political correspondent for The Post. What stands out to me is um, just just watching the Republican uh, convention and they're spewing this fear, right? Like, all you do is keep hearing a fear. It's... It's amazing why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. It became clear very quickly after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that numerous NBA players had taken that news and that video to heart. I just want to send my prayers out to Jacob Blake and their family. It's not right. The Jacob Blake situation, you know, just such a terrible situation that we're going through in this country still. This is bigger than just the game. You know, I'm not taking anything from the game, but, man, this is life. What continues to happen with the police brutality towards my kind is just, it's very troubling. My name is Ben Galvin. I'm the national NBA writer for The Washington Post. I'm reporting live inside the NBA bubble at Disney World in Florida after an historic week uh, in the NBA that saw the Milwaukee Bucks decide not to take the court for a game on Wednesday, which triggered the postponement of numerous games this week. The Milwaukee Bucks showed up at the arena on Wednesday for their game against the Orlando Magic with their jerseys on, with their warm-ups on. And the Orlando Magic actually took the court uh, minutes before the game. They were ready to go. The referees were there. NBA officials were there. 
Of course, there was one problem. The Milwaukee Bucks never took the court. They stayed in their locker room and held a team meeting for more than three hours. Ultimately, when they emerged, they addressed a small group of reporters who was on scene demanding justice for Jacob Blake, saying that they had decided not to play as a way to protest uh, his uh, shooting. So our focus today cannot be on basketball. When we take the court and represent Milwaukee and Wisconsin, we are expected to play at a high level, give maximum effort, and hold each other accountable. We hold ourselves to that standard, and in this moment, we are demanding the same from lawmakers and law enforcement. We are calling for justice for Jacob Blake and demand the officers be held accountable. The Bucks' decision triggered a meeting of the NBA players on Wednesday night to discuss what their plan would be. You know, all the NBA stars uh, got into the mix, as did the National Basketball Players Association, which is the players' union. There was kind of a heated conversation about what are the best next steps? Do we want to go home? And it briefly seemed on Wednesday night like the entire bubble experiment would be in jeopardy. On Thursday, the players held a meeting. They decided to continue with play. However, the NBA has now lost three days of scheduled games you know, due to the Bucks' action. The fact that they didn't go all the way and end their season, which would have created a level of trauma to their bank accounts and to the future of the entire league, I can understand why they stopped short of that. There's power in the restraint there. And then it created this avalanche throughout the rest of the sports world. Multiple leagues canceled an enormous amount of games, and sports went as close to dark as it has been since March 12th, when the coronavirus caused them to stop playing. I'm Jerry Brewer, sports columnist for The Washington Post. I don't know if we will ever see the majority of a sports league unify around racial justice in this way. However, what I do know is that a precedent has been set that fundamentally changes civil disobedience in sports. When players really want to take a stand on something and when they can build a consensus, there is something different in the playbook that they can do to get people's attention. And while it may not speak to something in society as a whole, there are a lot of issues that are very specific to sports in which you could use this and get the attention of the leaders in sports. So for the fans, the message kind of becomes maybe the the direction that sports is headed, maybe the direction that society has pushed sports. It's just not going to be obsessed with relating to everybody. I'm wondering how effective you think these protests have been, because, of course, there have been some people saying that this is all just for show, that it doesn't really change anything. But I did think that it was notable. Um, A former colleague of ours, Wesley Lowry, he tweeted that he'd spoken to Jacob Blake's uncle. Of course, Jacob Blake is basically at the center of all this. And Blake's uncle has said that he really appreciated this stance from the NBA and the WNBA, and that he and the rest of Jacob Blake's family have really taken this to heart. And so in some ways, it does feel like this is a powerful form of protest or at least a powerful form of statement. Yes, it's all tied together. Some people say 
all you're doing is protesting and there is no action. The protest means nothing. As a matter of fact, even uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers football coach, Bruce Arians. I think each guy has a personal thing. Um, I, I would I would beg them to take action, find a cause and either support it financially or do something to change the situation because protesting doesn't do crap, in my opinion. There was a tremendous backlash against him for saying that. This is a part of how you express yourself in a democratic society. We are dedicating this season to Brianna Taylor, an outstanding EMT who was murdered over 130 days ago in her home. Uh, the WNBA has partnered with Say Her Name. A campaign committed to saying the names and fighting for justice for black women. And put that in its messaging, which is the strongest messaging still among any sports leagues during this time. Black women who are so often forgotten in this fight for justice, who do not have people marching in the streets for them. We will say her name. Sandra Bland, Atiana Jefferson, Dominique Remy Fells, and Brianna Taylor. We will be a voice for the voiceless. Sports leagues and their popularity, I think have done tremendous work in getting a greater group of people to really understand what the problem is and how desperate and how urgent people feel about it. I also wonder if this is going to have a permanent effect on what is considered acceptable for athletes going forward. Because I, I think what's interesting is that up until this point, you know, you had some leagues that had an attitude that, you know, players are here to play. They're not here to talk or speak or think. And then you had other leagues like the NBA that was basically making this argument of, you know, you play the game. And as long as you play the game, you are free to be passionate about the things that you want to be passionate about on the side, as long as it doesn't affect the game. But now we're at this point where the protests does affect the game and that all of a sudden the game itself and the play itself are considered fair game for things that could get disrupted in order to send a message. The great thing about this is it happened in a bubble in which the NBA has essentially said, we're going to wall ourselves off from society and try to evade the novel coronavirus and finish our season. Coronavirus hasn't been able to get through the bubble. Racism did. And that should, should be a message to everyone about how sports is not separate from society. Sports is a microcosm of society. And in order for sports not to be affected, we have to do the work. There's so many parallels between COVID-19 and racial injustice and sports and how it intersects in this. Basketball players and football players and baseball players and hockey players to just shut up and play. Uh, the duality of sports has been permanently terminated. People are going to have to get with the idea that athletes are human beings. It's not that there is no separation. I also wonder when you think about the fact that all these players are currently stuck in this coronavirus bubble, did that have anything to do with the fact that they felt empowered to take this stand? That they're basically all stuck together, walled off from the rest of society right now? I think what, what started all of this with the knee on George Floyd's neck, we were all in a high level of isolation at that time. And I think when you're isolated and your life is simplified, you see things a lot clearer. I think the same concept has happened with, with the NBA. And I think for them, a lot of it's the realization that they're limited. 
they're isolated from the rest of the world and it just seems like nothing will stop. That's very clear to them and that's affecting them in tremendous ways. How do you expect that this new attitude about protest among athletes might cause conflict in the future and in coming months. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the NFL, which has historically been much less tolerant of outspokenness from from athletes. Um, And if and when they resume their season, will this be a thing that players will have the ability to do? And if they try to do it, what will happen if they decide that they will not play because of what is happening in this country. The tension is here for the rest of the year. The tension is here until there is some kind of finality on on whether there will be reform um, at a national level and in some of these municipalities. Because this tension that is building between sports fans who just want a diversion and athletes who are saying, I'm more than a toy entertainer is going to continue to build until society settles down. The most heartbreaking thing for me was to watch Dominic Smith of the New York Mets crying during an interview, pleading. Kind of see this, you know, continuously happen. So, uh, I mean... Yeah, it was a long day for me, so. (laughs) And trying to explain why he played, his heart wasn't in it. The rest of sports was taken by surprise by all of this. And it's taken them a while to figure out what they want to do. And I think they felt a strong sense uh, that they have to have the NBA's back, that we're all in this together, that it's... If it's bigger than basketball, it has to be bigger than football. It has to be bigger than baseball. It has to be bigger than all of the sports. And it took them a while to figure out uh, what kind of stands they wanted to take, whether it's skip practices, skip games, those kinds of things. But what you see is as united a sports world as you are going to get, which is incredibly difficult because they all have different demographics in terms of who plays these sports and who watches them. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. Ben Golliver covers the NBA. On Friday afternoon, the league and its Players Association announced that as part of their agreement to resume games on Saturday, some arenas across the U.S. will be converted to voting centers for the 2020 election. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renee Svarnovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. 
The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.